Now, uh, as we're looking at this passage, we could be considering a whole bunch of things. We could be talking about authority and servanthood. We could be talking about um, the Son of Man giving his life as a ransom for many. But I want to pan out a little bit and ask the question, what do you want and how is that affecting you? Or are you going to get it? What do you want? How is it affecting you? What's your plan to get what you want? Um, to answer that question, I have a just a groundbreaking biblical revelation for you. I mean, it is, it's groundbreaking. It's overwhelming. That is, Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, he likes to teach us things in sets of four. Woo! I know. Wow. He uses groups of four to teach his readers something important about Jesus or his kingdom. Um, early on, there were four stories in the gospel in which Jesus said or did something surprising or scandalous. And after each time he did that, one of his observers asks, why did he do that? Uh, and so Mark is inviting us to look for the answer. The answer is because he's the Messiah generically. So we called that the four whys. <laughs> okay. A few chapters later, after we'd seen Jesus do several remarkable things like, you know, cast out demons, be an exorcist, and heal people. Um, these are special supernatural things, um, but not unprecedented. You know, prophets in the Old Testament did those. There were uh, perhaps other sort of spiritual leaders doing things like that. All of a sudden, Mark is to the point where there's this set of four things that happen that are like cosmic. They are huge. It's not just casting out a demon. It's casting out a whole army of demons. It's calming a storm at sea and even the waves stop instantly. So there's four of those. We called those the four wows. And the basic lesson was because he's God in the flesh. So th there probably have been more sets of four that I haven't noticed but um, guess what? We're in the middle of a set of four right now. And uh, I didn't realize it until this week as I was uh, preparing for this sermon. This scene that we just heard with James and John coming to Jesus, it's the third of a set of four. It started with parents bringing their kids to Jesus. You can put up the next slide there. So it started here. People were bringing their kids for Jesus to touch and the disciples scolded those who brought them. Next, the next slide, um, the, uh, uh, we saw this rich man come and fall at Jesus's feet and ask him for something. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? After that is the passage we just heard with James and John. Uh, that's the first verse of it. And finally, in the, in the passage right after this, there's this blind man named Bartimaeus. I'm going to read the whole passage for us because this is where we'll look at it as well. They came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many scolded him to get him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, have courage, get up, he's calling you. He threw off his cloak, jumped up and came to Jesus. And then Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man replied, 
Rabbi, let me see again. So Jesus said to him, go, your faith has healed you. Immediately, he regained his sight and followed him on the road. Okay. So we have the four whys and the four wows. Guess what? It's the four wants. They even all start with W. Isn't that fun? Okay. <clears throat> I'm having fun. <sighs> yes. So if we consider these four things as a group, we will see different lessons than what we would, we've seen as we've looked at each one. The first two we looked at really in depth. But I want to, for a minute, consider them all as a group to see uh, what we wouldn't see with them on their own. It's a set of four, all right? So um, one, two, three, four. The first and last of those feature weak or ostracized people. So you have kids in the first one and blind Bartimaeus in the last one, all right? And uh, these people are immediately, Jesus responds to their request just immediately and positively. Um, they're even made exemplary by Jesus. The middle two wants feature um, people who are more prominent, more impressive. You have the rich guy who's been very obedient to the scriptures, and you have James and John who are part of Jesus's inner circle of the of the three. They've left Peter out in this. Um, so you have the, you know, it's kind of an A, B, B, A format. If you're a seminarian, that is a chiasm. If you're not, you don't care. There's more. In these, Jesus is met with four requests. Blessing, advice about eternal life, authority and glory in the kingdom, and the desire for physical sight. And guess what? He does not rebuke or turn away any of them. He's open to all of their requests. Maybe a couple of them are redirected or corrected, but they are not rebuked for bringing their desires to him. But wait, there's more. In every one of these stories, most of the disciples, unless they're the ones asking in our today's passage, respond negatively to the request. Did you notice that in each one? They're trying to get the, par the parents, don't bring your kids to Jesus. They're, they're, they hear Jesus' interaction with the rich man and they are shocked, like, this is crazy. They are mad at James and John, and they're trying to keep this very adamant, loud, blind man quiet from distracting Jesus. All right, so this set of four kind of holds together. Even the word desire is in them, especially in the last two. Jesus says the exact same thing to James and John and to Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? Isn't that interesting? Exact same words. So if we look at these four together, I want to offer three, maybe four simple lessons, all right? First lesson, you can and should bring your wants to Jesus. As a community, the most important thing that we can do for one another is to encourage connection with Jesus. Uh, let me speak personally. The best, most important role that I have as a pastor is to get you connected with Jesus and get out of the way. Like, that's the most important thing that I can possibly do as your pastor. Why? So that there you can share all of your desires and therefore your heart 
with the living God and see what he does with it. In every story, Jesus welcomes the request. Even the ones that to us, we would think, well, that Jesus might not be too psyched about that, right? He welcomes them. What I'm saying, in other words, is that every single desire you have, all of them, are an invitation to get closer to Jesus. Every single thing you want. And I, I'm serious. I'm talking about the desires that you're happy for other people to know about and the ones that you would be very embarrassed if other people knew about them. I'm talking about the things you pursue in secret and the things you pursue in public and the things that you just try to stuff down because you don't feel like you should want that. Every single one is an invitation and you can bring it just boldly and plainly to him. I think that's what we learn in these four wants. What happens when you have a desire that you don't bring to Jesus? Maybe it's something you're embarrassed to bring before him. You suspect it might be inappropriate you, based on what you read in the Bible or whatever, what you've been taught in Christian culture. You think he might disapprove. What happens when you don't do that? Well, first, if you believe in Jesus, if you know about the Jesus of the Bible, do you think he doesn't know about that desire? <laughs> like, you think he's like, oh, yeah, like, you know, only hearing what you're saying and that's it? If you don't mention it, he might not find out you're planning to remodel your kitchen instead of make a big charitable donation, you know? Okay. So if you do that, you, now you're left with a surface level relationship with Jesus because both of you know that you're being dishonest in it. You're withholding something. All right. Second, here's what happens when you keep your desires from him. You become disintegrated. Integrated? No, disintegrated. There are parts of your life that will cease to be part of your faith, no matter how important you say your faith relationship with Jesus is. And since you think that those desires are up to you and not things that you can bring to Jesus, you will start to give them more attention than the desires that you share with them. Because you think it's up to you, you're holding on to it. It's your responsibility either to fulfill it or to shut it down. You think it's up to you. That part of your life will grow until you find that your relationship with Jesus is really not all that relevant as it relates to the most important things in your life. That's what happens when we don't bring all of the desires before him. So let me repeat myself. The most important thing I can do for you is encourage you to bring every single desire rolling around your heart and mind to him. You may desire harm for someone in your life. Talk to him about that. Honestly, read the Psalms. David is always praying for his enemies to be badly murdered. All right? He, God can handle that. He can handle that. When the longing surfaces, no matter how immoral you think it is, it is an invitation to come to him. If you think it's super moral, don't just 
do it on your own thinking you want to impress him. Bring it to him. You don't need to know how to pray to do this. Jesus, can I have this? I want it. Can I have it? Like, start there. Why not? That's the first lesson. Every desire is an invitation. The second lesson, very quickly, is beware restricting others from bringing their desires to Jesus. Parents, people with spiritual influence, maybe in this church or in other places, beware of restricting others. Did you notice, again, in every one of these four stories, some or all of the disciples are trying to quiet the questioner. They try to make their parents go away. That makes Jesus real mad. Maddest, I think we see Jesus in the Gospels. Madder than, you know, turning over tables in the temple. He is livid. Friends, are we protecting Jesus? Is that what we're doing? Are we embarrassed that somebody might pray something that's scandalous? Like, what are we doing? What are the disciples doing when they're doing this? And how often do we subtly do this? We, we maybe kind of stand between someone and Jesus for a while because, you know, they're too young or they're too brash or, or they're too selfish, they're too proud, they're too offensive, they're too loud like Bartimaeus. You will not find Jesus angrier in, in all the Gospels than, than that moment with the kids. You won't. He offers strong, corrective words to the other ten when they're mad at James and John. Even though James, I, does, doesn't their anger not make perfect sense to you? I mean, think about Peter. <laughs> think about Peter. He's part of the inner three. And he's been left out of this request. James and John went on their own. Just put yourself in Peter's shoes for a minute. You're like, oh, what? You got, what? You, do you know that, that feeling? Man. As soon as a faith community or religious leader or anyone puts themselves in between somebody's desire and Jesus, no matter the desire, we have departed from the gospel and we have taken up with Jesus's opponents. We have taken on what I would call dead religion as opposed to a vibrant faith. As soon as we do that, as soon as we start putting up rules and regulations to restrict certain prayers, if he can handle your twisted desires, if you, if you bought that first point, he can handle your neighbors too. It's okay. Your neighbor is not quite as bad as you. Second lesson, or third lesson, sorry, third lesson. When you do bring your desires, I think these four stories teach us to, uh, to hold them with open hands. I need to be careful here because I've already said that the worst thing that I could do for you is to turn you away from bringing your desires to Jesus. So if you can't quite hold it with open hands, just tell him that too. I want this. I'm not giving up my want for this. You, you know... I'm just letting you know. <laughs> Maybe that's how your prayer starts, all right? Still bring it. But there is a rub that we learn in these stories. The rub is that his answer might not be what you're hoping it will be. It might, 
But if you believe that Jesus is capable and wise and has access to everything that you could possibly need, then bring your desire before him, not only as a hope that it might get fulfilled, but maybe as a sacrifice. Maybe this is actually what the book of Romans means when it says offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Like all the stuff in you, what, is, what happens if you bring it before him? This lesson comes really clearly in the middle two stories with the rich man and with James and John. The rich man wanted to know how to earn heaven on his own. That's what he wanted. Jesus invited him to sacrifice all of his earning power, literally, and receive heaven instead. That was what happened. James and John wanted a share of Jesus's authority and glory. They wanted permission to ride on his coattails, you know, as kind of 1A and 1B in the in the team. Jesus invited them and the rest of the disciples when they asked for authority to instead sacrifice authority, honor, and glory altogether, and then they'd have it for sure. Of course, other times when you bring it even open-handed, like the parents in the first story or Bartimaeus in the last one, he joyfully instantly gives it. And when you start practicing that, bringing desires more, guess what? You find that he's answering more often. I've experienced that recently in several ways in this church. He's always using our desires to transform us, either grow our faith and trust in him or refine us and give us what we really need. Okay, if you sense that a desire that you have is wrong, sinful, taking you in the wrong direction, connected to an addiction, well, I hope you're kidding me. You, you can talk to him about that. He knows, and you can talk to him about that. Bring it to him anyway, because that's when he'll deal with it. That's, that's being a living sacrifice. You lay it in front of him. Sharing that desire, whether you're proud or ashamed of it, is a vulnerable thing, and he will use it. So I, I want to share with you a, a recent experience of this in my own life. At the beginning of May, uh, our denomination had a regional meeting, and, uh, and the focus of that meeting was evangelism. And it was awesome. It was so inspiring. I loved hearing the stories and I loved the tools that they were giving us. And, and a lot of what we're doing now with the slips and, you know, putting people's names down is kind of um, in response to that. We've, we've learned and we're trying to grow. Um, I developed a deep respect for people who were devoted to and practicing evangelism. And so I was reminded of a prayer that used to be a pretty regular part of my life and uh, that I'd kind of faded off from praying. And, and it's this simple prayer. Lord, give me the gift of evangelism. Give me the gift. Give me boldness. You know, give, give me the opportunities. Let me be part of you bringing people into your kingdom. It, it, that sounds like a great prayer, doesn't it? Sounds pretty good. I was pretty sure that God felt like that was pretty good. Like, nice, Mike. 
way to, oh, way to ask. It's like my kids asking if, you know, if they can clear their plates after supper. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I wasn't quite right about that. <laughs> One day in the quiet space of a walk, as I was bringing that desire proudly before him, I, I sensed a response that surprised me. God began to show me what I really wanted. I wanted to be seen as an evangelist. Do you know that? Do you see the difference there? I, 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 I wanted respect and admiration from you. Oh, wow, let's tell stories about what Mike's doing. I wanted my fellow pastors to think that I was so cool for doing that. I wanted future people who would buy my future books about how I changed the world. I wanted invitations to speak at conferences and interviews on major Christian radio shows and podcasts. I, I was James and John. I wanted the glory for that. Do you, do you see what was missing? In that prayer for the gift of evangelism, I didn't care about the people who needed to be evangelized. They were just an, a means to an end for me. I wanted a notch on my belt. There was no love for anyone other than myself in these prayers. If God had given me what I had asked just as I was asking it, I'd be evangelizing for my benefit and not theirs. And guess what? That would probably drive the people that I shared Jesus with away from Jesus. God doesn't care about me. My prayer for the gift was the same as James and John's. Lord, can I share your glory? Now, I suspect most of us hear the story of James and John, and, and we think, let them down easy, Jesus. Like, be, be nice to them. And he kind of does. We assume their desires are wrong and they need correction. But if that's true, if you, if you think that, you're missing the fact that Jesus supports the desire for glory in this passage. He affirms it. Now, the others, you know, get mad. James and John have their thing. He tries to tell them the cost for getting it. And then he tells all of them, if any of you want to be the greatest, like he said, here, I'm affirming that desire. If you want to be the greatest, well then, be least of all. Be servant of all. Sounds familiar. That's just what he said the first time kids came up in chapter 9. I, I am fascinated by the 13th century St. Francis of Assisi. I, 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 his life just amazes me because here's a guy who saw stories like this and decided to go, all the way with it. That's what he decided to give up all of his means, all of his access to income, all of it. He didn't really want possessions. He, he chose to beg. He, he served in every way that he could. He chose humility. In fact, he, he avoided authority and influence. And wherever he went, people flocked to join his movement. Wealthy people, people who were in positions of governmental authority were like leaving everything behind to join Francis's movement 
it was a leadership problem. He had to figure out how to manage all of these people who were joining in with him. Interestingly, there's actually a Francis in our day who's living what appears to me a similar story. All right, I, I don't know everything about him, but, but literal, a literal Francis. I'm talking about Francis Chan. He's a, he was a, a pastor of a mega church in Southern California. And you know, as he preached these radical, inspiring sermons that people loved, and he got all the speaking gigs and book deals and all of that stuff, he realized that faithfulness to the very message he proclaimed meant he needed to get out of the spotlight as much as he could. He left his church, went, tried to kind of start a house, a house church movement. He, that still was too much in the spotlight. He tried to go to China, he, you know, and he said, goodbye, America. Like, I, I, you know, I'm, I want to get out. And uh, out of the fame that he couldn't avoid, of course, China kicked him out and came back. But um, so the story still is unfolding. But Francis Chan's message and his life is so surprising. It's so intriguing. It, it's it's so inspiring because he's going all the way. And the more he tries to give it away, here's what I'm observing. Now, he's a sinner just like us, okay? But here's what I'm observing. People everywhere are like, tell us, teach us. Show us how to live, man. Like, you're doing it. The more he gives it away, the more the Lord pours it on him. Now, let's pan out a little bit in this story again. Right before James and John come to Jesus with their big request, Jesus had just finished saying something to everyone. This is verses 32 through 34. Uh, it's up on screen. The way uh, they were on the way going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was going ahead of them and they were amazed, but those who followed were afraid. He took the 12 aside again and began to tell them what was going to happen. He said, look, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and experts in the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him severely and kill him. Yet after three days, he will rise again. Jesus finishes saying that. Maybe takes a breath. And James and John come with their request. Is that not insane? This is Jesus has just explained his process. And James and John are like, hey, um, never mind what you were saying. When you get on your throne, um, you know, like, what? It's, it's sad. I don't know. It's funny. What is it? They want VIP seats. So Jesus tries to connect the dots. You guys, you, you heard me, right? Welcome back, kids. You can find your parents. You guys heard me. Can, can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? In, in English, these sound like neutral questions when Jesus asks this. But Greek has a funny way of, of asking questions that tells you what the answer is. Probably a better English translation would be, you guys can't drink the cup that I drink, can you? You can't be baptized with the baptism that I'm headed for, can you? Like, you, you guys don't know what you're asking. What is Jesus talking about when he says this, this cup and this baptism? Of course, 
the common understanding is this is a reference to Jesus' suffering and death. It's the cup of God's wrath, the same cup he'll pray about in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, let this cup pass from me. And the baptism is a baptism into death. Water represented death, and Jesus is going to go all the way in. You guys, can you drink that cup? Can you be baptized with that baptism? Their response is stun it's stunning. Yeah, we can. <laughs> the rest of them are like, what? Um, okay, but then Jesus' response is even more shocking. You're right. You will be. You will go through those things. The question is how? Okay. Most of the disciples did, in fact, die for their faith. John may not have been martyred, but most of them suffered great cost for their faith. That may be what he meant, but there's more. He told the crowds that the only way to receive the kingdom was like a little child who is not a little child is not in charge of where they go. Well, Jesus will be handed over in Jerusalem. He, he will lose his rights to choose where he goes. He told the rich man that the way to eternal life was to give up everything. And then he explains to them that in Jerusalem he'll be mocked and beaten. He'll lose even his dignity and comfort. He told his disciples that the way to greatness was to be the least well, he's going to become a servant of all, even to the point of death, giving up his life, as he understands it, as a ransom payment for many. That's service. He told Bartimaeus that the way to sight was his faith. And then Jesus talks about how he would rise again by the power of God. Every request that we see in this set of four that describes desires for us is going to be earned for you on Calvary. Every single one. Jesus has already explained the way to true fulfillment of our desires. And the night before Calvary, he will hold a cup in his hands and describe it as a cup of his own blood. And then he will share it with them. I wonder if James and John are sitting there thinking, remember that time he told us that we will drink the cup that he drinks? There he is offering the cup to them, the cup in his blood. You will be baptized with his baptism. You will join with him in his death when you're, baptism, when, when you're baptized. That's what it means. It's God joining people together in the blessings that are offered in the death of Jesus. The blessings, life, glory, and health of the kingdom of God are offered to you through the death of Jesus. Every desire you have find its fulfillment there. And he wants to show you how. So bring him to him. He died to give it to you. If he's willing to go to such lengths out of his love for you, what can't you ask him? What can't you ask him? Pray with me.
Father, I'm asking by your Holy Spirit that you would draw really near to everyone in this room right now. That we would know that you are a God who has pursued us all the way. You have pursued us like the prodigal son to the pigsties. You have pursued us to the highest heights and the deepest depths. You have pursued us all the way. And you are waiting for us to say, oh, oh man, all of my desires could be fulfilled back at my father's house. You want to offer it all to us. So Lord, for the prodigals in this room, for those who don't realize they're the prodigals in this room, I pray, God, that at this table, we would come face to face with the one who receives our desires with love and kindness and uses them to give us what we really need. In Jesus' name, amen.